Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Matt D. Fothery, Lee Boyd, and Rob Beller. Hey, Podcast World. Welcome to another edition of FNO InsureTech. I am not Lee Boyd. He is no. that guy. You yeah, are. Me. This is Lee Boyd, your host. Yeah. And this is Rob Beller, your co-host. I am Rob Beller, your co-host. Right. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today, Rob. It's an honor to be here, Lee. Thank you for asking me. You're welcome. I didn't ask. <laughs> you just showed up. I'm like a bad penny. That's right. That you can't get rid of, right? That's right. You keep finding You keep it. throwing the damn thing away and you look in your pocket and there it is. That's true. You are. Remember when we used to carry change in your pocket? Were you ever a change carrier? Yeah, we carried change. In fact, we collected change for by eight or 10 years and we were able to fill up with all of our change. We filled up on those giant five gallon water buckets. Uh huh. Since then we cashed it in and we've had a very hard time filling anything up because we don't have change. There's no change. What happened to change? I know. I know. My, my sister-in-law always gets on to me because we don't have cash. We always use our debit card. And she says, why can't you use cash? Everyone uses cash. I said, no one uses cash. No. no. That's not what you do anymore. In fact, I don't think I've had cash in my wallet in quite some time. I am looking in my wallet right now. There. there yeah. Empty. Showing Lee my empty wallet. I don't have to look in mine because it's empty. And we want to hear from you, our loyal listeners. How many of you carry cash and how many of you carry change? You know where I carry change? I carry change in my car in a little thing so that if I have to pay a meter, but now you know what they've done with meters because here in Sacramento, there's a lot of parking meters. Yeah, they're all, um, they're all debit based. They're all debit cards. That's right. right. I haven't put a coin in a meter in a long time. Right. So basically the point of this story is you don't need coins anymore. Don't need coins. There's you know what no you point. do need? What do you need? You need cyber insurance. Oh, because everything's gone digital, right? <laughs> there you go. That's exactly what we're talking about. I mean, in a world where uh, analog anything, i.e. money, i.e. Yeah. paper money or coins, have become irrelevant, cyber is larger and larger and larger and larger. Digital is larger and larger and larger and larger. And we need protection in that world. Wouldn't you agree? I wouldn't. Wouldn't it be great if we could bring a person on today to talk to us about cyber and maybe cyber insurance and cyber risk and, and what we need to do to maybe protect ourselves? Wouldn't that be great? It would not only would be great, it would be remarkable coincidence because here we are talking about it. Yeah. And coincidentally, our guest is here today, Asaf Lipschitz from Sayada Labs, to talk about the world of cyber. What a coincidence. Coincidence. And why it's necessary and what it is and what it does and why you should be not sleeping at night. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Knowing what this man knows. I'm so excited. I'm ready to go now. Let's go. Okay. Without further ado, let's get to Asaf Lipschitz, co-founder and CEO of Sayada Labs. Cybersecurity, like you hear about it on the news or you read in the news that there are um, offensive 
uh, parts of foreign governments as well as our own government. And their weapon and weaponry has to do with technology and cyber attacks, either cyber attacks, you know, here in the United States or cyber attacks that we're attacking somebody overseas. Is that really true? Does that really happen? And how serious is it? Yeah, there's, I think there's two types of attacks, really, if you really want to simplify. There's more nation-state run attacks, and, you know, I think no one, you won't find anyone on the record, like any government official necessarily confirming any specific activity, but generally it is well understood that you want to be able to engage with an adversary over the internet. That could mean because you want to sabotage systems, that could mean because you want to gather intel, and the cyberspace, if you will, is just, there's just one frontier along which you can do these things. You used to do these things in the physical space. You can do these things in the cyberspace, quote unquote. That's one type of attack. And then other types of attacks that make it to, like that make headlines would be just attacks targeted at businesses. A lot of those are from separate entities. So those could be from really crime groups. You could almost think of it, I think the model I find most helpful to think about these groups are companies almost, for-profit companies that happen, their business is attacking other companies and then monetizing. There's a couple of ways where you can monetize once you've gotten a hold of a company's IT systems. Um, But that would be a separate class of attack. Just recently, there was, I think, a mental hospital or some, some sort of hospital that got hit with ransomware a lot of times people believe that that's, you know, it's always very hard to know for sure who the attacker was and what their motivation was, but it's widely believed that that was a financial motive, just a crime organization trying to monetize their ability to infiltrate other organizations. You know, whenever I think about somebody doing a ransom attack or the cyber attacks, I guess through the movies, I'm I'm picturing in a coffee shop or a internet cafe in a third world country or a first world country, wherever, just in, in a, somewhere doing this. Is that how it is? Or is it just somebody in their bedroom who, who is doing all this? Where Who are these people who are causing all of these problems? Yeah. So really, I think it's, again, there's, there's very definite answers because all the good guys don't do that hands-on and, and the bad guys don't necessarily re- report on that. But there are companies that spend unbelievable amounts of time tracing the bad guys and mapping and trying to link different attacks to each other via who the common attacker is, et cetera, and like groups build reputation. Most commonly, I'd say, visualized or modeled as a for-profit or not, not a one-off, not one person, but a multi-person operation. By the way, trading with each other, uh, very surprising. So you would have different companies, quote unquote, right, crime organizations specializing in different parts of the attack flow or the steps of the attack. So you you could have, there was one example that, that blew my mind where you could have one type of organization that's very good in exfiltrating data, but part of that data is encrypted. So, encrypted. so they sell that to another organization who's very good at decrypting data. And then they sell that, the decrypted data, they sell that to a third type of, I guess, company, quote unquote, that crime entity is then very good at figuring out. So the, the, So data could be login information and encrypted passwords. And so you decrypt it. So now you have a long table of usernames and passwords. And guess what? People, you reuse their passwords. And so they, that, that third entity would use that password across multiple uh, websites. Uh, and so all of a sudden you get to populate, right? So you started with encrypted data set, decrypted, and then now you have a list of other websites where these credentials also work. And then, you know, they could sell it to another fourth type of company or company, quote unquote, 
uh, who would know how to monetize credentials. Because there's some skill in that, like just to get someone's credentials. So email and password, for example, to retailer.com. There's some degree of specialization of how are you able to then extract money from that. That's just a, a long example to describe a really a very intricate marketplace and ecosystem of really, I think the closest mental model I have is for-profit companies trading with each other. Is this our new mafia? Is this the new organized crime out there? Yeah, for sure. A lot of people describe it that way. So would it also encompass not only the internet, but do cyber crimes also encompass telephone calls? I get called all the time asking for things that I feel are going to show my bank account or where I live. Would phone calls fall underneath this? Yeah, no, absolutely. There's That would be one of the techniques. I think, by the way, the scary thing is uh, it's getting easier and easier to automate. So really, the lower the barriers are for executing an attack, just the more of them you're going to see. What these organizations do, the reason I say it's it's interesting to think about them as for-profit companies is because, well, what do companies do? They have X resources and they try to maximize the return on those resources that they have. Attackers, a lot of time are no different. So they try to find those opportunities that will give them the biggest return for their buck. And the more they can automate attacks, so keep the lower the level of investment per attack, the more appetite they're going to have to execute these types of attacks. If you can cast a very wide net and make many, many phone calls, and you know, you could even, you know, in a few years from now, maybe have some sort of AI powered agent talking to the individual on the other side, right? And getting them to divulge. And it doesn't have to work on a high percent of cases, it only, you know, for one of a thousand people give you information that they shouldn't, like their date of birth. You know, Mr. Smith, I just wanted to confirm your date of birth for reason X. Uh, and maybe that's the security question that they have for another service that they're using. Wow. Yeah. That's, so, so really, I think that's a scary part of where, you know, the intersection of AI and cybercrime could, could come into play. These technologies are commoditizing. It's not there yet, probably, but it's a matter of time. I, I don't know what the t- timeline is, but I can tell you that I am constantly surprised by how fast the progress is, is observed. Right. So are they interested in you and I? I mean, do I have to worry about something happening on my computer or are they just after large sums of data that they can pull from, you know, some kind of corporate data center? So it's a very good question. I think that um, generally, again, it goes back to return on investment. And so usually the larger the entity, the bigger the upside, uh, but also the higher, the, the more difficult it is to penetrate. That's really, I think, the calculus that is often made. And so for individuals, it is still not the case. I can tell you that personal cyber insurance sold to individuals is substantially a smaller market than to companies, for-profit companies absolutely are, incre- and, and smaller ones as well, are increasingly becoming targets. They don't monetize as well as a big organization where you know you can make a ransom note and maybe, maybe get $10 million in ransom, but they're also much harder to penetrate. And you can cast a very wide net and try to hit maybe 100 times more SMBs, and you won't make as big of a return on any one of them, but uh, the aggregate could be a substantial amount of money. Yeah, But really, it's just up to <laughs> however creative the bad actor can be. One bad actor might look at that and say, why would I want the records in a mental institution? But the next one says, wow, there's money in this, and they can see that potential. I want to ask you, because you know we don't usually get to talk to people with your skill set or knowledge. I was in, about a year or two ago, there was an enormous breach at Target. I was in that breach. Mm. Now, do I need to stop sleeping at night? And be worried. I mean, 
you know, they gave me some service that checks my credit and keeps track of things. And they send me an email every month saying, you know, no suspicious activity has been found or anything like that. But how serious is it when, which is becoming more common, in fact, probably anybody listening to this podcast has had that happen, where you've been included in a data breach. Is that bad? Yeah, so I think there's multiple ways and this could be bad for the individual. Definitely anything, you know, to the extent that you've had information there that you consider private, your purchase history, et cetera. It just depends on what was uh, accessed and what was compromised. That would be definitely first one top of mind. The second one would be it's possible that they got access to information that would then help them access other accounts of yours. Many people reuse passwords. And so the passwords typically are not stored uh, in plain text. So it's not a trivial task to get them out uh, of a database once you get, get access to it. But it's really just a question of resources and how much money you throw at it as an attacker. And a lot of them do throw money at it and then the reverse engineer, if you will, find your password from the leaked data set. If you use the same password for an email combination, oftentimes, right? You'd have your, your user at target.com would be the same as you have for another service that you use, amazon.com, for example. It then becomes very easy. Hey, let's just try you know, that email and password combination on a bunch of other websites. And mm -hmm. that could compromise that as well. Again, uh, depending on what you have, for some of them, there's, you know, the, the, the worst that they can do is um, order a package or, or something. Sometimes that, that gets flagged. I think it also view your order history. It's, it's, it's really that's um, what I would assume is where you'd start being concerned. The, the way to protect yourself is <laughs> easier to say than to actually do for most of us. And that's don't reuse passwords. That sort of isolates you from one incident to the other one. Yeah, and, and that, that's something I want to get into here. In a minute, I want to get into insurance. What happens if, if something happens to you? But what is the best way to prevent it? Is it password only? Is that the biggest thing? You know, there's a wide range of opinions when it comes to that. Like, what is the most effective thing? I could tell you what the best practices are. And more specifically, I could tell you what best practices we find, like insurers tend to ask. Okay. Though those things are a good proxy for what's important. That, by the way, part of what got us like interested in cyber insurance is, you know, that's a very important question to answer. And insurers are interestingly have aligned interest with the policyholders. Like they both don't want an attack to happen. And so insurers are are in a good position to try to understand what is important and less important. Because you can only enforce certain levels of security on the, your policyholders. You can't ask them to be as secure as like Bank of America, for, for example. Right. And so you have to be very thoughtful of, okay, what is this one thing that I'm really insisting, one or two or three things that I'm really insisting that they do in order for me to feel comfortable insuring them? So all that long uh, explanation to say, looking at and what insurers ask is at the very least interesting. Now, what do they tend to ask? Tend to ask for a few things. One is uh, definitely password reuse, but also... Uh, another component linked to password is two-factor authentication. So mm -hmm. they really like it when you have, you know, it's not just a password, but you also need to have access to that person's phone number, right? Or to be, to be able to receive text on that phone number. So it's not to say that it's impossible for a hacker to get access to your text as well, but it just becomes infinitely more, or not infinitely, like 100x more difficult to do that than right. to just go on to the next person, right? And so two-factor authentication go, goes a long way. Another one is some level of, two-channel authentication for wire transfers. For example, if a business email gets compromised, okay, 
then all of a sudden, like a type of attack is to uh, send fraudulent invoices, okay, or to request fraudulent transfers of money. And so I could, you know, someone could send an email from the CEO, hey, transfer X amount of dollars to this account um, to someone from the finance team. And then unless there's this dual channel authentication, right? Hey, this is a big sum of picking up the phone and calling the CEO. Hey, this is a big sum of money. Are you sure you want this a million dollars transferred to this account? You know, good practice would be to have that second layer of separate medium of communication. And so some insurers are interested in that. Those would be high on the list. Well, that's great. So yeah. I have subscribed to all sorts of different things that tell me if an email has been compromised or a password. And I'm always shocked at how many times it happens. Right. You know, it, it's out there. Your email address gets out there on the market a lot, right. uh, way more than just once every few years. And it's uh, from smaller companies. I mean, there are these services like, like Credit Karma that, that tell me all the time. And now I notice that Apple, whenever I look at my passwords, Apple is now telling me, hey, this, this password may have been compromised or this account may have been compromised. Why don't you go and update it? Uh, so there's a lot of useful things out there telling us to update. Now, whenever we do get attacked as individuals uh, or as companies, why don't we talk about it as a company? When a company gets attacked, what insurance do they need and, and what does cyber insurance actually do? Yeah, uh, we could definitely shed more light on that. So when a company gets attacked, it depends a little bit on what happens with the attack. So attack could be, can mean several things, but let's take ransomware, I think, as a good illustrative example. And it's also becoming increasingly popular for the reasons we discussed earlier, such a, an attractive monetization process for attackers, increasing their motivation. They do, do it more, cast a wider net, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So ransomware. You know, what good does it do to have a cyber policy in place when you're hit by, with ransomware? A couple things. Uh, number one, the ransom itself. <laughs> that could be quite a lot of money, um, especially for small businesses. It could be, it started pretty nominal amounts. But over the years, I think attackers have realized that their customers, quote unquote, willingness to pay in order to get access to their data or get back access to their data is higher than what they initially charged for that service, quote unquote. And so now it could be six figure, seven figure amounts of ransom. So that is to a large extent potentially covered by, by an insurance policy. Then you will, you lost access to your IT systems. Good chance that you incur some, some level of uh, business interruption to use the term, right? So you can't uh, provide a service that you used to pr providing and, and, and so you, there's lost profits as a result of that. Maybe you need to bring in a forensics team. That, that costs money. Sometimes you need to handle some sort of media engagement. And so you might need a, a breach coach or a PR firm. There's a couple of such coverage items that would come in handy uh, in the event of, of ransomware. Uh, some cover uh, the fraudulent uh, invoices that I, that I mentioned earlier. There's really, I mean, just today, I think I heard about one for contractors. If they lose a bid, due to a cyber attack, then they get covered. So, wow, um, yeah, it's really, really people get very uh, creative and really, I say creative, but really it's addressing real needs of businesses that understand, uh, or increasingly, I should say, increasingly understand either because they've experienced it uh, or, or um, colleague of theirs or peer of theirs have experienced it or for, for whatever reason. I've heard the stories about ransomware, which are, you know, completely frightening. I, 
cities or municipalities or government agencies that are basically shut down by by ransomware. What's going on there? Is that just a, a low-hanging fruit in this world for them to go after? And how does cyber coverage help a situation like ransomware? How it helps uh, from, you know, the industry consensus helps a lot because a, a lot of the big ticket items are, are coverable. The insurance company could pick up the check when it comes, like would actually pay the ransom and depending on the coverage of the policy, et cetera, et cetera, uh, cover the business interruption costs. It's like really a lot of the things that, that go into into the costs associated with a ransomware event. Why specifically municipalities? Uh, it's a good question. I would imagine that um, sometimes these organizations have less of a budget to invest in security. So it's really a, again, for the attackers, it's a game of cost versus benefit. And if the cost mm-hmm. is a little bit lower to penetrate an organization like that, then it would to be their, you know, organization of equivalent size in the private sector. I mean, if that's what they believe, then they're, they're going to deploy more resources to that at the expense of deploying it to for-profit companies. What's the process that occurs if you actually need to use your cyber policy? Yeah, so most common advice is, uh, and I, I think I uh, endorse that message, call the carrier as soon as possible for a couple of reasons. The, the biggest one is that it's sometimes resolvable and very quickly, or you definitely want it to come to a resolution very quickly, right? Because while that's happening, there's a lot of uncertainty. You can't operate your business. And so you just want to resolve it as quickly as possible. And then sometimes there's ways to not even pay the ransom. It's a real thing that happens. So sometimes attackers are... I'd say not diligent enough. So either you're able to find a backup that they weren't able to get to, or the way they encrypted their systems is partially reversible. So sometimes insurance company or the vendor that it hires is able to avoid paying their, their ransom itself. And so, yeah, typically the, the right thing to do in most cases is to very quickly call the insurance company to guide you through the process because they've seen it a million times or not every insurance company, but uh, the big ones for sure have seen it a million times. I can only assume that this world of cyber attacks is going to get bigger and smarter and become more of an issue. I mean, should people start looking at individual cyber policies on their own behalf? You know, it's no longer just companies, but should I have a personal cyber policy? And does that even exist? You know, that's a very good question. I think it does exist. As I I alluded to earlier, it's definitely a smaller market than for businesses. And I actually have heard of substantially fewer instances where that has happened. If I had to guess, it's because consumers are much less willing to pay to get their data back, or it's more difficult maybe to even compromise their systems to begin with in a way that, that they can't get it back to begin with. It's also unclear how it, hackers would even, you know, what would be their choice of monetization? Can they really successfully lock you out of your systems? I don't know, because a lot of these organizations have this method of recovering your access to your, to your account. And can you really incur like a business interruption cost? And can you really, how do you put a price tag on privacy? Like you can experience some breach of your privacy. So I don't know, someone gets access to photos of your kids and you don't want them to have access to photos of your kids. But it's very hard to put a price on that, right? You can almost always ensure only things that have a objective price sticker, right? Like have has some degree of quantifiable loss and, you know, different people would would have put a different value to that. Uh, I don't know enough about what those individual policies cover. I imagine that the, always the easiest thing to cover is ransom, the ransom portion, and I can very much imagine a future in which attackers get access to your 
email account or Dropbox account or whatever and, and extort you for money for that. I don't know if that's already a thing, will be a thing in the far future, easily covered by insurance companies, don't, don't know enough about it. I know personally if it was available and I knew that it's increasingly a thing, I would seriously consider buying it for myself. Is it fair to say that cyber insurance is in its infancy? I've read, I've seen various estimates about how large the market is and how large potentially, you know, on the revenue side is ginormous because what responsible business wouldn't have it? It's just kind of getting off the ground, right? It's it's very quite early. The answer to that probably varies by geography for sure and also um, size of businesses. So the larger organizations tend to hold a cyber insurance policy for quite a while now. The smaller the business, the less likely it is that they will have a cyber policy in place. Very hard to get an accurate estimate, but it's definitely not 90% of SMBs that have cyber policy in place. And even when, when they do, is it of adequate coverage or is it the cheapest one that they could possibly get or something that's uh, added on to another policy that they have? And so, yeah, it's pretty, it's a consensus view is that it's generally underinsured for sure. That's one element of it being in its infancy. I really think that the dynamic nature of the industry means that it almost never will be a quote unquote solved problem, right? Almost always there'd be some new, in, in two dimensions, right? Like both on the, what do you cover? Because attackers are probably going to be creative and come up with new ways of creating losses for insureds. And so the product itself is likely to evolve and definitely the intensity of the different exposures, right? And how frequently they happen, how severe they are, that's also likely to change. I mean, just think of the, the very least, the IT stack is changing, right? Never mind what attackers are doing, right? That's just the, the way organizations operate, right? They it used to be on-premise software that you license, very little, you know, uh, degree of interconnectedness. And now it's all like almost bring your own device situation where a lot of SaaS applications that, that you interface with each other. It's just a whole different structure for organizations. Yeah. So even for that reason alone, you can expect the risk to evolve over time. And then on top of that, attackers and defenders are constantly playing game of cat and mouse. So, so that's another reason why I think the both product and pricing of it will, will change over time. Well, listen, we have really enjoyed having you on with us today, and we're hoping that you'll come back later too at, at a later date. But today we just wanted to kind of level set on cyber and what's out there in cyber insurance. And I think that you really helped us to do that. No, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. That's a really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You know, I've wanted to have an episode for our audience that talks about cyber and what it is, not just the services that are offered to it. So that's why I'm glad we had a soft on to kind of give us a, a survey. Yeah. Of what the problems are out there and what the opportunities are. Well, and that's what he did. And he gave us some wisdom on, on how to not be a victim of cyber crimes like that and how to, to watch what we do. But uh, it, it is interesting what all is out there. I'm very interested to learn more, have him back on, mm -hmm. really learn about what he's doing mm -hmm. uh, at his company. I think mm -hmm. that's going to be very interesting. He's a brilliant person with a fascinating background. In fact, I don't even know if we talked about it. He has a background in physics. Now yeah. he's working in the insurance space on, on cyber insurance. So I think he's doing some amazing things. And I think that his team is, and I can't wait to hear from him again. Right.
Yeah, we'll look forward to that. And we appreciate all the insights and information about cyber and encourage you to reach out to us off if you uh, have more questions about the field in general, because the man is uh, quite an authority. And we thank you for being with us and thank you for listening and thank you for participating in our little crazy experiment that we call FNO InsureTech. Before we go today, there's something that we'd like to say to you. Merry Christmas! And Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We do this all for you and it wouldn't exist without you. And to all of our guests, we want to say... Merry Christmas! (laughs) We wouldn't have a podcast without you. It would just be Lee and I jibber-jabbering away, making absolutely no sense. And so we say to you, Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Anything else I'm missing? I'm sure I'm missing something. Please hit us up on email. But we thank you. For being with us for a year, we had at FNO InsureTech, we had an amazing year. We exceeded everything that we thought could happen, and it was all because of you, and we do it for you. Thank you for being a part of our family. Merry Christmas. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>